When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 28, Margaret of Anjou, a great and strong laboured woman. Last time, I ended the show by saying how the birth of Margaret of Anjou's son, Edward, and the incapacitation of her husband by mental illness brought home to the Queen that it would have to be her that would ensure her son's right to the throne was protected. She would have known what happened in her native France when its king, Charles VI, had suffered a mental collapse. It fell into vicious internoble fighting and almost led to it being entirely overrun by the English. Looking at her pitiful husband and his catatonic state, she knew it was only a matter of time before the same thing happened to England. In France, it had been the support of the then Dauphin Charles's stepmother, Yolande of Aragon, Margaret's grandmother, that had led him to gaining his royal inheritance. Margaret knew that. She was raised by Yolanda. Now it was her turn to protect and defend her son and ensure that one day he would become king. The speed at which England fell into civil war is quite incredible, though, as I said in the last episode, there were signs. The loss of England's French territories left royal prestige in tatters and disinherited a great number of its nobles. The murder of Gloucester and then Suffolk men who ruled the kingdom in the name of its incapable king, left a great power vacuum that squabbling nobles wished to fill. And the uncertain nature of the succession meant that the great men of England had a chance to dream of wearing the crown. I introduced the runners and riders last time as well. Somerset and Exeter, the first two descendants of John of Gaunt, who amongst other things was Duke of Lancaster, and York, who was a descendant of two other sons of Edward III, one of whom was the first Duke of York. Now, of course, we know this conflict as the Wars of the Roses, but this is not what it was known as at the time. In fact, it was Shakespeare that helped popularise this moniker, thanks to a scene in his play, Henry VI. Here is an extract from it in the BBC's wonderful Hollow Crown series that aired earlier this year. The first person to talk is the Duke of York, followed by Somerset, and then their supporters. Since you are tongue-tied and so loath to speak, let him that is a true-born gentleman he supposed that I have pleaded truth. From off this briar pluck, a white rose with me. Let him that is no coward, no no flatterer, pluck a red rose from off this thorn with me. I love no colours, and without all colour of base insinuating flattery, I pluck this white rose with my lord. I pluck this red rose with brave Somerset, and say with all I think he held the right. 
Now, of course, for the moment, all that these nobles were seeking to be, at least in theory, was the heir to the throne. After the birth of Edward, they pivoted to seeking the right to govern the kingdom during the incapacitation of the king, as regent or lord protector. Well, for that, they had an opponent, one who had no interest in becoming king, Margaret. She made her big move in February 1454, just a few months after the birth of her son. This is from the Paston Letters, quote, The Queen hath made a bill of five articles, desiring those articles to be granted, whereof the first is that she desireth to have the whole rule of the land, the second is that she may make the Chancellor, the Treasurer, the Privy Seal, and all other officers of the land, with sheriffs and all other officers that the King should make, the third is that she may have all the bishoprics of this land, and all other benefices belonging to the King's gift, the fourth is that she may have sufficient livelihood assigned to her for the king, the prince, and herself. This was, to say the least, a bold move, and it had no real precedent in English history. Her husband was still alive and a free man, unlike Edward II during Isabella of France's years as regent for her son. There was precedent on the continent, such as Isabella of Bavaria during the reign of her husband Charles VI in France, and Margaret no doubt would have had support in this move. She would not have done it if she hadn't, and in ordinary times, she may have even gotten away with it. But these were far from ordinary times. The problem, simply put, is that her only legitimacy came from her marriage to the king. Yes, she was the mother of the heir presumptive, but while the king was alive, that did not mean much in legal terms. The only chance she had was if the king could confer her with the powers of the regency, but sadly, the king was still completely out of it. This meant that, for now... Margaret's bid for power fell on deaf ears. According to the historian Helen Carstor, quote, The nature of her husband's illness made it difficult for her to obtain any significant hold on the exercise of legitimate royal authority in his stead. In an earlier century, Eleanor of Aquitaine had enjoyed wide-ranging informal powers during her son Richard's absence from England, when he was detained elsewhere by the demands of crusade and the bars of a German jail. Isabella of France, meanwhile, had demonstrated the Queen's capacity to embody the legitimating power of royal justice and the common good against a king fatally compromised by his own tyranny. But Henry was not physically absent, nor was he a tyrant. He had never overstepped his powers. Instead, he had never properly inhabited them. Margaret's ability to take decisive action was, therefore, compromised by the fact that her husband was both present and blameless. He had not done anything wrong even if it was by dint of having not done anything at all. Her main knife for power was York. He was already in charge of the Royal Council, and had had Somerset thrown into the tower on charges of treason related to the loss of Lancastrian France. York sought the role of Lord Protector on the same basis as Gloucester had held it during the minority of Henry VI, since it was clear that Henry was possibly even less suited to rule as a catatonic adult as he had been as an infant. Without Somerset as an ally to oppose him, Margaret attempted to rally his supporters behind her, but her gender was too high an obstacle for the undecideds. It was assumed by many that her bid was nothing more than an impetuous move made by an inexperienced woman who had no hope of being a leader of men. She can't have been really serious about it, right? How very wrong they were. After a final attempt to get some sense out of the king was made in March 1454, York was made Lord Protector of the Kingdom, at the head of a noble council who would, at least in theory, act as a kind of cabinet government, exercising collective noble responsibility, though of course the buck would very much stop with the Duke of York. 
Before that happened, though, Margaret made a small yet important move. She had her son Edward made Prince of Wales and Earl of Chester. Now, the title of Prince of Wales was not always yet given as per tradition to the heir of the throne as it is now. The first Prince of Wales had been Henry II, and was handed out over a century and a half since then to the heir presumptive, if there was a son and heir available. Generally, though, kings waited until their son was of age before giving him that title. By investing Edward with that title so early, as well as giving him a noble title with lands, Margaret was elevated in the status of her son. He was still only an infant, but now he was the Prince of Wales, and that title carried weight. If York did want the throne at some point, he would have to find a way to elbow his way past Edward I. Even so, York had won this round of the battle, and over the next few months he proved himself to be a fairly competent captain of the shaky English ship. He did not have the power to purge the Council of the Queen and Somerset supporters, and this provided for a fractious atmosphere. He also had to deal with an empty treasury, a mutiny in the army, a belligerent France threatening to invade, and a private war in the north between the two great families of the region, the Nevilles and the Percys. Amongst the Nevilles were two men who are super important in our story, the Earl of Salisbury, whom York had named Lord Chancellor, and most importantly, Richard Earl of Warwick, soon to be known as the Kingmaker. Now, York was not an impartial man, and the support for the Nevilles that ended the war in their favour had far more to do with the fact that his wife was a Neville than any divine wisdom, but given the situation he was handed, he seems to have done okay. Even so, the sharks were swirling around him, not least the supporters of Somerset, who were champing at the bit to secure the release of the Duke. Once that happened, all hell could break loose. With York in power, though, that was never going to happen. But then, everything changed once again. On Christmas Day, 1454, the king suddenly became lucid again. A Christmas miracle of sorts. Here is an extract from the Paston Letters. Quote, Blessed be God, the king is well amended and hath been seen Christmas Day. And on St John's Day, that's the 27th of December, commanded his almoner to ride to Canterbury with his offering, and commanded the secretary to offer at St Edward. And on the Monday afternoon the Queen came to him, and brought my Lord Prince with her. And then he asked what the Prince's name was, and the Queen told him Edward. And then he held up his hands and thanked God thereof. And he said he never knew him till that time, nor wist not what was said to him, nor wist not where he had been while he had been sick till now. The king was back, and suddenly as his illness set in, it went away just as quickly, though it is unclear to what extent he was completely, quote-unquote, cured. The most immediate consequence of this momentous event was the release of Somerset, no doubt on the advice of Margaret. Now, of course, this was all good for Margaret's main goal, to secure the throne for her son. She had not won the protectorate for herself, power lay with her recovered yet still weak husband, but he would be far easier for her to guide than York, who resigned the protectorate in February 1455, after it became clear that the king was in possession of all of his, albeit limited, faculties. But York was rightfully worried about the belligerent attitude of Somerset. His release was supposed to be predicated on him not seeking power, but that did not last long. He had his ally, the Archbishop of Canterbury, made Lord Chancellor, and seized control of the king's council. It was then that war was inevitable. York's great allies, the Nevilles, withdrew from court with him in April 1455, and the Lancastrians planned to hold a great court at Leicester in May. The battle lines were beginning to be drawn. 
Now, Margaret would have been involved in the planning of this great court, but she did not accompany the court north to the city, staying behind in London, possibly because she knew just how dangerous this court would be. You don't bring the infant heir to the throne right to the lion's lair. This court was seen as a show of force against the Yorkists, and so York determined to strike first. If he could remove the Somerset ulcer from the side of Henry, then the Yorkists could resume their domination of government, ill king or sane king. Attack was the best form of defence here. He moved his army down to St Albans, and in the streets and houses of the town, they intercepted the royal army. The Wars of the Roses had begun. It was a short battle, and with relatively few casualties, but crucially, the two main leaders of the royal army were killed, Somerset and the head of the Percy family. The king, of course, had not been involved at any stage of the battle, despite being with his army, and was taken by the Yorkists back to London. Not quite a captive, but hardly a free man either. York once again swore fealty to him, claiming that he had only acted in his best interests, but it was clear now who was in charge. Yet this triumph would only prove temporary, for they had underestimated the Queen. Margaret, despite her associations first with the disgraced and deceased Suffolk and Somerset, was still a powerful figure at court even after the resumption of York's protectorate. Margaret held no particular grudge against York before St Albans. She'd actually met him before she had even met her husband, as he had been part of the party that had escorted her out of France a decade before. Now, though, they were enemies. York clearly had his eyes on the succession, and, as I said before, Margaret's only priority was to ensure that her son would become king. Anyone standing in her way was her enemy, and this made York her enemy. Of course, York had never said anything in public that was not loyal to the king, but things could, and would, change. After St Albans and York's triumphant entry into London with the king, Margaret had fled with her son to the tower, but a week later she emerged and rejoined the court. No doubt she was allowed to because York still did not consider her much of a threat. York's new protectorate would be even more short-lived than his first. He had two major problems. One, there were too many supporters of Somerset, or Lancastrians, I'll just call them now, and two, the king was not incapacitated. Yes, he was still a weak ruler, but York's position as Lord Protector was getting harder and harder to justify. In February 1456, just three months after assuming it, he resigned his office, but he was still the dominant figure at court. Yet there was equally no doubt whom his main opponent was. In a letter written at the time, Margaret is described as being a, quote, great and strong-laboured woman, for she spares no pain to sue her things to an intent and conclusion to her power. Strong-laboured here is a little ambiguous, but it seems to mean that she was much sought for advice and support. She was now undoubtedly seen as a figure of tremendous power, and not in the traditionally female manner. In the last episode, I read a quote that slammed Margaret for having manly qualities and manly pretensions, essentially saying that she was meddling in business that she had no right to meddle in, given her lack of male genitalia. While now is when she really started to throw her weight around in the man's world. First of all, she needed a proper power base, and so she moved herself and her son up to Kenilworth in Warwickshire. There, she was later joined by her husband, and they took stock of what they had. They of course had the person of the king, and no one yet was openly doubting his legitimacy. They also had the heir to the throne. Now of course these are all fairly abstract things, but they also had more tangible things, more precisely, land. 
Through the Duchy of Lancaster, they held tremendous amounts of land, especially in the Midlands, and Edward was Earl of Chester and Prince of Wales, all of which came with money and men. Margaret set up a court there, and to it flocked supporters. They included the new Duke of Somerset, the new Earl of Northumberland, both of whom, if you remember, had lost fathers at St Albans to York and the Nevilles. There was also Clifford, who had lost his dad at that battle, and the Duke of Buckingham, whose son was married to Margaret Beaufort. And remember that name, because she's about to become very important. After Edward, Margaret Beaufort arguably had the strongest claim to the throne, as she was a descendant of Joan of Gaunt and the daughter-in-law of Catherine of France. The people flocking to the royal court with Henry as its figurehead, but Margaret as its de facto leader, must have hoped that this was the royal leadership that they had been hoping for. No longer was England being mishandled by a mentally ill king led astray by corrupt ministers on the make. The king was well again and being ably advised by the queen. He even had an heir now. Of course, York would not have been wild about his recently won power being leached away from him, but he was forced to travel to this new court led by his greatest rival. There he watched, as the Queen's men started to scoop up all the fancy jobs in the kingdom. Her own Chancellor, for example, became Lord Privy Seal, and the King's Confessor and Bishop of Winchester became the King's Chancellor. York himself was forced to swear an oath of loyalty to the King, and when he left, he was said to have been, quote, in right royal conceit with the King, but not in great conceit with the Queen. The next year, in 1457, a council was appointed to oversee her son Prince Edward's affairs, and once again it was entirely composed of her own men. And so you can see her surrounding both the current and future kings with men that she could trust, and crucially, who were not allied with the Duke of York. Now these moves were hardly subtle, but they were equally not tyrannical. It was hard for York to legitimately object to this regime, even while he was being squeezed out of it. That said, Margaret was playing a dangerous game here. There was only so far that she could go in excluding England's most powerful and wealthy magnate from the corridors of power. One of the central duties of kingship was to bring people together, to unite the disparate noble alliances around the kingdom and maintain the peace. When it all came down to it, the king was just another noble. The only difference was the crown on his head. If you'll forgive me a slight tangent... There is a wonderful exchange in A Clash of Kings, the second installment in George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Fire series, the sequel to Game of Thrones, where two noblemen debate where power truly lies in the kingdom. Is it the most powerful general? Well, no, because the best warrior is not always the king. Just look at how many kings ruled in their minorities or when old men. Is it the wisest man? Well, that's patently never true. That can be dismissed out of hand. Is it the most legitimate? Well, who is to say what is legitimate? The rules can be broken. Just look at the succession in 1066 for a good example of that. Is it the richest man? Well, of course money can buy you many things. But is Bill Gates the president of the US? Nope. What the man in Clash of Kings says is this, quote, Power resides where men believes it resides. No more and no less. For now, people were willing to believe that power resided in the hands of its anointed king and in the people whom he trusted with the reins of state. But if York could persuade them to think differently, well, then that would lead to the whole system collapsing. To mix my TV references up, Margaret was playing with a very delicate house of cards, and without care, the whole thing could come collapsing down very quickly. When added to the quote-unquote unnaturalness of a woman wielding so much power when her husband was alive, totally emasculating him in the eyes of many in the kingdom, her heavy-handed attempts to squash York led to mutterings. Some of these mutterings led to talk that her son Edward was not actually the fruit of the king's loins. Now, of course, this was all distributed by Yorkists, especially after they took over, but this theory may well have been believed at the time. Here it is articulated in the English Chronicle. Quote, the queen, with such as were of her affinity, ruled the realm as she liked, gathering riches innumerable. The officers of the realm fleeced the poor people, disinherited rightful heirs, and did many wrongs. The queen was defamed and denounced that he who was called prince was not her son, but a bastard conceived in adultery. It then goes on to say that she raised up a body of support and made, quote, secret approaches to some of the lords of England to stir the king that he should resign the crown to her son, but she could not bring her purpose about. Now this appears to be blatant tosh. Margaret had no desire to overthrow her husband. If that were her desire, then she would have done so well before now. The whole basis of her son's claim was based that his father's was legitimate. Any doubt on Henry's suitability to rule would inevitably impact on Edward's, and given that he was still a child, he had no real ability to defend himself. The actual accusation of adultery here is yet another clear example of a powerful man defaming a powerful woman by accusing her of some sexual deviancy. When it comes to making women look bad in the Middle Ages, and frankly for all of time, people always look to sex. It's a sad fact, but it's true. Perhaps perceiving this, Margaret, through the king, arranged in 1458 a rather extraordinary event. The Love Day. This rather adorably named occasion was something often arranged to solve disputes between two parties, especially in the localities. The aim was to show that the kingdom was united and that disputes between the Queen and York were resolved. In January, the nobles assembled in London, each in all their finery and bringing plenty of men with them, just in case this show of peace turned into another St Albans. The atmosphere must have been tense, with hundreds of men loyal to nobles like the Queen, Somerset and the Percys, in close proximity to those loyal to York and the Nevilles, such as Warwick and Salisbury. For the next couple of months, negotiators sought to come up with some sort of peace accord, something that both sides could agree to. Eventually, by March, something was reached. 
The Yorkists were to pay a relatively small financial compensation to the victims at St Albans, well, the noble ones, not the peasants, and offer masses to them as well. In return, they will be recognised as loyal subjects to the king. All forgiven. At least that was the theory. The agreement thus reached, on the 25th of March, the Love Day procession began. Crowds lined the street of the capital all the way to St Paul's Cathedral to see the great magnates of the kingdom holding hands with their bitterest enemies. First it was Somerset with Salisbury, then Exeter with Warwick, then came the king himself holding no one's hand, but behind him came the strangest sight of all, Queen Margaret holding the hand of York. This day, the 25th of March, was also Lady Day, the Feast of the Annunciation, the feast day of the Virgin Mary. A day carefully chosen to maximise the profile of England's Queen by linking her with the Queen of Heaven. She had forced the Yorkists to accept culpability for St Albans, and she was given pride of place at the glory end of the procession, hand in hand with the most powerful magnate in the kingdom. She must have felt very proud of herself. But it was all a sham. This was like going to the hospital after being run over by a bus and being sent home with a couple of plasters and some ibuprofen. The real issues at hand was not this perfunctory amount of compensation or a loyalty oath. It was about where power lay while the King of England was clearly unfit to rule. The Queen thought it was her, York thought it had to be him. It didn't solve the problem that York, the most powerful magnate in the kingdom, was outside of royal government. Nothing was done to resolve this key issue, and therefore all the effort on Love Day was for naught. The fact is that Margaret still wanted to sideline him, and York wanted to force his way back into the corridors of power. In fact, if anything, this procession, far from uniting the kingdom, actually made clear the dividing lines of the conflict in the starkest possible terms. What made this rather farcical situation all the more ridiculous is how quickly things devolved again to factionalism. Initially, there was decent enough progress, as York was made Commissioner of the Peace, and Margaret's government took on a slightly more even-handed approach, with him and his acolytes being given a far fairer distribution of titles and responsibilities, but this did not last long. The next flashpoint, though, would not involve York. It was to do with Warwick. The problem was that Warwick was the commander of the Calais garrison, the only standing army that England had. The reason why England had no larger standing army is that standing armies are terribly expensive and England could not even pay the wages of the force defending England's last foothold on the continent. Therefore, to pay the wages of his soldiers, as well as for his own enrichment, Warwick engaged in a little bit of light piracy. Now, of course, he points to the fact that the royal government was not giving enough money to do his job, while Margaret and her allies decried Warwick's breaking of the Love Day peace accord. This all meant that in October of 1538, only seven months after Love Day, there was an attempt to remove him from the command of Calais. Warwick had no intention of being relieved of this command, it was highly prestigious, and he saw it as part of a Lancastrian plot to remove all Yorkists from important posts. In November 1538, he went to the Royal Court at London, but there got involved in a violent scuffle with a group of Lancastrians that nearly cost him his life. At that point, he, Salisbury and York resolved that they would never be safe in London and left the Royal Court. Margaret then saw an opportunity to isolate them further, she called a new royal court in her own stronghold of Coventry in the West Midlands in May 1459, knowing that there was no chance that the three Yorkist lords would appear. Once they failed to turn up, she was able to accuse them of treason. She also began to distribute badges to the soldiers under her command, those of the king's lands, her own and those of her son. They wore the badge of the swan wearing a crown about its neck, the sigil of the Prince of Wales. This is what happened next according to the English Chronicle. Quote, 
Richard, Earl of Salisbury, having with him 7,000 well-arrayed men, fearing the malice of his enemies and especially of the Queen and her company, which hated him mortally, and the Duke of York and Earl of Warwick also, took his way towards Ludlow, where the Duke of York lay at that time, so that they both together would have ridden to the king at Coles Hill in Staffordshire, to have cleared themselves of certain articles and false accusations touching their allegiance laid against them maliciously by their enemies. When the king heard of their coming, those who were about him counselled him to gather a power to withstand them, and informed him that they came to destroy him. The queen lay then at Eccles Hall, and at once by her urging the king assembled a great power whereof Lord Audley was chief, and had the leading of them, and went forth to a field called Bloor Hill, by which the Duke of York and the Earl must needs pass. And there both hosts met, and encountered together, and fought a deadly battle. And there was Lord Audley slain, and many of the notable knights and squires of Cheshire that had received the livery of the swan. This battle of Bloor Heath was the spark that started the next phase in the Wars of the Roses. You may have noticed that this war is rather stoppy-starty, and that is the main theme that I can see of it. It was a series of conflicts that took place over 30 years, over basically the same issue. Who has access to the king, and who gets to be king? The first battle was at St Albans in 1455, but it is now four years later, and this is the first major encounter since then. Margaret's role in this is hard to completely tease out, as both sides sought to paint their party as the rightful one. It was easiest for the Lancastrians, who claimed that they were fighting to defend the rightful king and the Prince of Wales. For the Yorkists, they used the excuse that all rebels against royal authority use, which is that they were not actually fighting against the king, they were fighting to free him from evil counsellors, and no counsellor was more evil than Margaret. Thus, in many sources, the 10,000 men led by Lord Audley is represented as the Queen's men, but it is likely that they were no more her men than any of the other leading men of the royal regime. She, of course, was not on the battlefield at Bloorheath, but was instead a few miles behind the battle line waiting for news. Undeterred by the shock defeat, the Royal Army regrouped and marched on the Yorkists at Ludford Bridge in Shropshire, near York's stronghold of Ludford Castle. This time, the King was present at the battle with all his royal standards. Of course, he was not involved in the actual fighting, no one would trust him anywhere near sharp and pointed weapons, but it is said that the mere presence of the King made York's soldiers unwilling to fight, they would not take up arms against their king. The Yorkist army scattered, as did its leaders. York and his son Edward to Ireland, Salisbury and Warwick to Calais. It was a stunning turnaround, and a testament to the steel now at the heart of the Lancastrian government headed by Margaret. This was the kind of decisive leadership that England needed. Sadly, though, this would prove to be the exception that proved the rule. In the aftermath of the battle, all three Yorkist lords, along with their families, were found guilty of treason and had their lands taken from them. Margaret clearly believed that she had won, but this rather tyrannical action only inflamed the passions of the enemies of the crown. Now the Yorkists had nothing to lose, and in the gamble that was the battlefield they had everything to gain. This was a huge mistake by Margaret and her allies, and it quickly backfired enormously. Salisbury and Warwick sailed back across the Channel in 1560, and found themselves welcomed back into the kingdom in the southeast. Margaret had concentrated royal power in the Midlands and Northwest, and this led to a hemorrhaging of support down south. This meant that the Yorkers faced no real opposition as they entered London in July. Margaret organised a force from Coventry to face this invasion, and the two armies met at Northampton. She and her son stayed behind the walls of Coventry, while her husband the King nominally led a large army that was in actuality commanded by her ally, the Duke of Buckingham. The battle was a crushing victory for Salisbury and Warwick.
all the major Lancastrian commanders in the field were dead, and the Yorkists lost no key men of their own. Moreover, they once again, just as they had after St Albans, had possession of the king, and this time they had no intention of releasing him back into the hands of his wife. Instead of being the puppet of his wife and her supporters, he was now the puppet of his enemy and his supporters. They took Henry back to London, where he was taken to the palace of the Bishop of London, there as an acceptable face for the new Yorkist regime. In the wake of the defeat, Margaret knew that she and Edward would not be safe in Coventry, and so they slipped away to the remote Harlech Castle in northwest Wales. This area was held by Jasper Tudor, her husband's half-brother, and could be more easily defended while she planned her next move. Now York through all of this was still in Ireland, but hearing of his father-in-law's victory, he quickly returned to England, entering London in October. And he didn't do so subtly. He did so with the royal standard flying above his head. He was now sticking a claim to be not Lord Protector or anything like that. No, he was claiming to be nothing less than the rightful King of England. If the disinheriting of the Yorkists was Margaret's great blunder, then this was York's. When he arrived at Westminster to receive the acclamation of his people, none came. The Lords of England refused to proclaim him king. Just who the hell did he think he was? Realising his error, he entered into negotiation with the Lords and Commons, seeking to find for himself some sort of solution. In the end, it was decided to use the same solution that English negotiators had found in the Treaty of Troyes in 1422. Henry would remain king for the rest of his life, but once he died, the throne would pass to York and his descendants. In the meantime, he would rule as Lord Protector, resetting the clock back to 1455. At a stroke of the pen, Margaret's son Edward was disinherited. Everything that Margaret had been fighting for since his birth had been signed away. Rumours about the illegitimacy of his birth gained even greater audience, and this was used as further legal rationale for this proclamation. But once again, in this conflict, defeat was being snatched from the jaws of victory. In the Wars of the Roses, there were no good winners, only bad losers. Margaret, like the Yorkists the previous year, now had nothing to lose. No one was interested in a diplomatic solution here, it was all about aggressive negotiations. Margaret set sail for Scotland and petitioned their Queen Regent, Mary of Geld, to provide them with men and money to go win back the throne. In return for the port of Berwick-upon-Tweed, Margaret got the troops she needed. Her new chief commander, Jasper Tudor, raised troops in the northeast, and Somerset brought his army up from the southwest. This all caught the Yorkists completely off guard as they had split their forces. Warwick was in London, his son Edward of March was leading troops in Wales, leaving only York and Salisbury marching north to face this huge new threat. When the armies met at Wakefield, it was a rout. York never stood a chance and lost his life in the battle, as did Salisbury. It is not clear if he died during the battle or if he was executed afterwards, but the most famous account of it comes in Shakespeare's Henry VI, and I will close this episode with the scene because it is one of my very favourites. In this fictionalised version of the battle, York has been captured by Margaret and her commanders, and has been forced to his knees with a crown of thorns on his head. Well, looks he like a king? Aye, this is he that took King Henry's chair, and this is he was his adopted heir. How is it that great Plantagenet is crowned so soon and broke his solemn oath? As I bethink me, you should not be king till our King Henry had shook hands with death. Oh! 
is a fault. Too, too unpardonable. Off with the crown. And with the crown, his head. She wolf of France. Who tiger's heart wrapped in a woman's eye. Take thy crown, and with thy crown my curse. That in thy need such comfort come to thee. As I now reap from thy too cruel hand. Take me from the world. My soul to heaven. My curse upon your heads. This Lancastrian army then moved south and recaptured the capital, making the rather bewildered king a free-ish man once more. The she-wolf of France was triumphant. Next time, we will see that this moment was probably the zenith of Margaret's fortunes, as the tides of war continued to shift violently between Red Rose and White, until Margaret finally found herself defeated and forced out of England for good. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com <laughs>